Hi, Justice fans. Today we're talking the Bobby Christina Brown judgment, Officer Spaghetti Brain, and so much more. You are tuned into Black Hollywood Lives. Justice is served. Hello and welcome to Justice is Served. My name is Chelsea Galicia. Thank you for joining me and my co-hosts, Shaka Strong. Oop, nope, there. I flubbed it up for the first time in like a year. Shaka Smith, who you can find. Social media, Shaka Strong. And Yummy has returned. Yummy Abayami, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we missed you both last week on our pre-Thanksgiving show, and we had some awesome uh, co-hosts take over for you guys. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. A WWE wrestler and a stand-up comedian filled in for you guys. Oh, nice. uh, they did a fabulous job. I think you would be proud. Uh, today we have a very random roundup of legal stories, and uh, I, I guess their only thing to do is to get into them. Thanks for joining us. Um, this week, and and let's do this because we could be here for quite a while <laughs> if we took our time with which with each story. But um, let's just get to it. So uh, normally we start off with like the celebrity story, but we're going to start off right now with another story that I think makes a great context for the celebrity story that we're going to cover today. So the celebrity story is Bobby Christina Brown, the judgment that came out, which actually came out last week, but I held off on talking about the story until this week because I wanted to talk about it with you guys. Um, Just really briefly, she uh, obviously died, and Nick Gordon was found responsible, and then the judgment was for $36 million. Okay, so that's the update with that, but we're going to put that to the side a little bit and talk about this article that came out in the Washington Post Um, called In One Corner of the Law, Minorities and Women Are Often Valued Less. And this was by Kim Soffin. What did you guys think of this article? Uh, I I thought it was was interesting because it's something that we all knew that, you know, when we we calculate damages, um, it's kind of based on what that person would have earned. And a lot of times they use those tables. They look at race and gender. Yeah, it's, it's not even that they're like kind of, sort of, in there, I mean, they are at front and center, this yeah. race and gender used to figure out how much basically somebody's life is worth. Yeah, and as you know, as attorneys in law school, we're kind of trained to look at that and accept that as that is what you do to calculate these sort of damages. Well, in my mind, it's economic damages, right? Yeah. Loss of, few, of earning capacity and things like that. But I, it just didn't occur to me how much race is used and gender. I mean, some of the stories in here were kind of mind-boggling. It is. I actually, I mean, kudos to you. I, I actually didn't even think about the fact that oh. ra- race and gender would be used in those types of calculations. I, I thought it would be strictly, um, you know, what's this person's um, educational level? What has their historical earning capacity been? How can we project it into, into the future? I, I never thought for a second that their race would even be a part of the calculation or that their gender would yeah. be a part of the calculation. I didn't. One of the stories in the article was about a six-year-old boy whose uh, parents were very well educated and he had been exposed to lead as a, like a baby. And so he was probably is never going to hold down a real job because he acts out and he's really kind of out of control due to this lead poisoning. And the attorney for the family was arguing that he should get about three and a half million dollars. And the attorneys for the landlord said, mm, that's too high because the kid is Hispanic and they're, they don't have a great rate of uh, graduate degree um, rates. And so it should be maybe one and a half million. And fortunately, in this case, at least the, the judge kind of shut down that argument and said, I don't want that in my court. 
using that as a metric. However, if you still look at like uh, economics uh, or economists or ana- uh, why can I say it? economists' <laughs> analyses, um, their analytics they still incorporate that right. data. The when jury they- instructions, the jury. In- the tables have that baked into them already in there so even if you're not introducing that information um explicitly explicitly still is in there right it's still there in the in the information that the jurors are considering when they're making that well i I think it's it's certainly a balancing test because there there is something to be said for accuracy and fairness because you do have to if someone has to pay economic damages for um, you know a loss of you know future economic employment or whatever it may be, you want that to be a very accurate number. And quite frankly, they have to take race and gender um, into account um, to a certain degree when you're figuring that out when it comes to you know what you might earn in the future. I think that more personal factors should go into it. Um, I, even though it's, I mean, because you look at it, it's just way too much. I mean, like Hispanics, of... I mean, even a judge, in, in, was it in that case yeah. or another case, was like, they're Hispanic professors and gardeners. Exactly. So, how do you use race in that sense to. Well, you're making your, your... Even if you talk about wanting to be accurate, then, yeah. you, then you need to be. that. Even if you want to be. Uh, Accurate, then you need to take into account the fact that there are some inaccuracies in those initial calculations like, to begin with. It's not with. even totally well, accurate to base somebody's uh, potential earning capacity on their parents, but that makes a little bit more sense than just race. Well, and well, it, on top of that, some of these economic analy- analyses take into account, let's say, 1970s numbers, right. where the gender gap, uh, the yes. wage gender mm-hmm. gap, is much, much greater back but in the 1970s than it is now. So I, that, that in and of itself, that foundation I, is inaccurate for 2016. But, well, yeah, of course, the 1970s. But, but I'm saying we're, that those are, the, those are the reports that they're using. But then I, different economists will use different reports. So you, you have dueling economists that have different ideas of what people would earn. And so I think the judge and the courts have to, in their fairness, examine what economist is kept presenting the fuller picture. But to say it's not a factor, I think, would be inaccurate. It, 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 clearly, I'm not saying you should base it solely on race and gender. I'm saying it should be a factor. But so if, what do you say to the fact that there are Hispanics yeah. who are prof, uh, professors and there are Hispanics who are... Okay. It, it, it's Trash quite, when, you, when economists make these tables, they don't do it excluding those people. They include them. They include the people that are that are highly skilled as well. And so those tables are based on a percentage, and the, it, it accounts for the population of people they're looking at. I, I just can't. So believe, it, it I can't believe that that would be the argument man. to move it from three and a half million to one point five. And in the end, the judge mm-hmm. found two million was appropriate, which I think is low. Kind of in the and middle. then, well, but I don't think it should have been in the middle. And then they, the landlord, of course, appealed, and then they settled on one point nine. And so this kid is like five years old, and he's going to have to be taken care of and live off of one point nine million dollars for the rest of his life. Anybody else think that that's crazy? I mean, maybe I, it's a little difficult because I'm thinking yeah. of like what, how far 1.9 million will go in LA. But maybe if this but, kid lives yeah. in another part of the country, although this happened in New York, but, so. But remember when we were looking at the, when, we're, too. when we're looking at these damages, we're, we're taking our best guess. No one is saying this is this kid might not have been the one person to you know invent the biggest thing in the world. He may have been, but. We don't have that data in front of us. All we can do is take our best guess. And so, and is so, it fair to use his race to hamstring him? No. Well, I, I I find it's fair to use it as a factor for looking at. I mean, but there was but that was what it ends up doing. Race, in fact, yeah. will will hamstring his ability to 
Well, to, to, get, get, to get obtain a, a, lar to, to, a, a larger What judgment? about the right. other that, example? That's matter of fact. But the just, other example of a, of a person, yeah. one parent was black and one parent was white. So, of course, one set of attorneys was arguing that the kid was white. One set was arguing that the kid was black. I wonder which one was arguing for which. Well, well, I think... I think it's pretty obvious. That was kind of a sarcastic <laughs> question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I, I think when you're dealing with a case where you have to take... You have to look at all the different factors. I don't. I would never advocate basing it solely on race or solely on gender. But if you're looking at a basket of factors, including what people make in the marketplace, what, but how what, do you do that? Even with that's like what little, these economists are kids. trained to do. One <laughs> of the one of the stories covered in this article was about yeah. a pregnant woman and a six-year-old girl that were killed in a car crash. And the value of the little girl, the six-year-old girl, was much less than the male fetus that that other woman was carrying. I mean, when we say it like that, it sounds almost like objectionable. Terrible. It, it doesn't <laughs> sound... Almost objectionable. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow. Well, but when you... I mean, I think valuing life to any economic point is objectionable, but when it comes to these legal cases, we have to do it, and we have economists who are trained to do so. Um, I think certainly we can do a more ba a balancing test. We can look at exactly how much they weight race, how much they're weighting gender when they're looking at these things. Uh, or do we want it... But if we're going to exclude it, we we have to acknowledge... They play a factor. We are excluding this because we think it's something, you know, something like more prejudicial well, than, yes. than well, probative. I would yeah. say that. And I liked what they said in terms of you're taking past uh, past instances of, of racial discrimination and racial racial harm, and you're literally projecting them into the future. Absolutely. Oh, and and I agree with that. So do I like that the way we take our accurate? No, I don't think that's the way we should do it. But do I look at it as a valid way to determine economic damages? Mm. Absolutely. Well, no. I but I, I I think we need to. If I think in this, for the good of the public to, to remove it as a factor. But we have to acknowledge the fact that it is a factor, and if we're going to remove it, we have to say we just think it's because way too prejudicial to do this. Because we've done it terribly in the past. Yeah. And, I mean, there, there has been public outcry about this, only as far as I can tell, when it came to 9-11 victims. Because at first, the amount that families were going to get was going to depend, in part, on the gender and race of the victims. Yeah. And nobody agrees that that was cool. And only people who really knew what was going on called out the fund. And then they changed it to a, a gender or a race-neutral male that they were mm. going to calculate the damages with. So when people do know that this is going on, they don't agree with it. Yeah, so I, I think it should be – I think we should make sort of like a, a rule or – make that sort of effort that we're we're pushing for fairness. But to say that's not an accurate way to determine damages, I think is incorrect. I think it's an accurate way to determine damages. I, but I think even, if the, I, even if the underlying I, information in and of itself is not necessarily accurate? And I, I think that's up for debate with different economists. I think the underlying information actually is accurate. It's just we don't like it because it... It kind speaks of, of discrimination exactly. and yeah. unfairness and lack I'm, of equality. Yeah. And yeah, but it's still what we have when we talk about determining economic damages. No, so I, I, think I, I don't think it's way be, too much of an yeah. outlying factor. But then it's something. Then we need to address it in that form rather than say it doesn't play a role. It shouldn't be used. We need to say, look, it does play a role. This is what they would have made, but we think it's an unfair metric to use discrimination as part of the way we look at economic damages. Ooh, I, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one because I don't yeah. like it being used as a factor. And one place where it does not seem to have been used as a factor at all is in the Bobby Christina Brown judgment. So yeah. looking at these cases of, you know, some a child is rendered virtually unable to take care of themselves for the rest of their life, $1.9 million. 
Bobby Christina Brown passes away, and her family gets $36 because million. It was, because it was used as a factor, not the only thing, not the only metric. It, this, I, I do not know how... Now, listen, this was obviously really heavily leaning towards... Um, her family, because he didn't even show up. He didn't show up in court when he was found yeah. uh, responsible, and he didn't show up in court for any part of this process to determine the damages. I think in any of these cases, no matter what your race or gender is, if you have an estate worth $20 million, you're going to get a, a larger judgment for, you know. I think it's, all, it's also... They're going to look at all the it, factors. So it's, it's also different in this case. I think it's, one, easier to uh, estimate the amount, the economic loss for an adult who has a, a salary history. Um, but does she really have a salary well, history of earning income on her own? I, I, that, I don't know that answer. I don't know either, mm-hmm. but I do know that there is a value to having the Houston name. I know that she can trade off of it. She can get, more, more readily than I can, she can get endorsement deals, and I don't know whether she has historically, but she can get endorsement deals. She could but that's the thing. On, um, that's the thing is there was all sorts of potential, apprentice. potential, and uh, and and it's almost okay. Listen, this is the, this is the breakdown as I understand it. Um, that there were punitive damages of two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, conversion, basically theft of of her money, about a million and a half dollars, assault and battery, almost a million and a half dollars, and pain and suffering. As a result of assault, thirteen point eight million dollars. That still leaves another like fifteen million dollar, probably more. Attorneys are notoriously sucky at math, and I'm no different. But uh, there's a, tens of, at least ten, some odd million dollars left in there. That is the assumed loss of earning capacity, mm. economic damages. And had she probably been a white male, it probably would have been more. I mean, like, women are, you know, underserved in the film industry. They make less than men. And so if a prominent film actress were to, you know, pass away and there was to be a claim, the claim would still be in the millions, but it would probably still be less than what a man would have earned. So they're still using it as a factor. I think that this amount is obscene. I don't see Hmm. how it was logically derived at this. I understand all the potential. I think she had, like, didn't she already at the time have millions of dollars? Yeah. Yeah, so that money can just be passed on to her heirs, but her her earning capacity for just her own self. But I think earning capacity, they take into account probably how much money you have currently at the time. I think that uh, that certainly impacts your earning capacity. And I yeah, I think we would be we would know better whether the 36 million is reasonable if we had a sense of what were her business activities, what type of income was she making, what was she involved in. And see that's the thing is on the stand, Bobby Brown testified she wanted to go into entertainment and she was going to be a star and that whole thing, but I didn't see that in her lifetime she was making those steps. And so she's actually being given sort of the benefit of the doubt because we could all imagine the potential of somebody Whoa. like her. Whereas yeah. somebody like a, a no-name kid that has lead poisoning, we don't imagine all their potential the same way that we do when we know that person's celebrity parents. Well, we, we don't necessarily know what her business dealings were. But, you know, for instance, there's a lot of these Instagram stars that make tons of money um, using social media, some millions of dollars a month. Again, something that she yeah. possibly could have done, but I didn't see was 
already happening in her life. It may I don't have know, been, maybe, but I think it may I, have been, yeah. I, I just don't think we were aware we're of probably, it. We're yeah. probably, I mean, yeah, I, I don't view her as a yeah, super, super celebrity. Yeah, I'm pretty old, I'm not that cool, so it's <laughs> totally possible. I think a lot of these people probably have some sorts of ventures going on. That we just we, are. I like, or at least yeah. we're more inclined to believe they do, which yeah. is kind of, but to your point, that we're more comfortable with assuming that this person has a higher earning power because her parents are millionaires. And, yeah, and because she has a lot of money that she's using, and, you know, she's out and about, and she's booking this so and this is that. like, a, you know, the way opposite kind of conclusion. Here is a black female who's awarded thirty six. I think it would have been higher though. Had she been a white male, I don't, I don't think it's an opposite conclusion. I think it's just so uh, this, it's just a, yeah. she happened been, to be a lot it's, wealthier. It's like Brad and Angelina's kid. It, it would have been yeah. yes. It would have been higher if it was Brad and Angelina's yeah, kid. Yeah, absolutely. But, it, but it is amplified by the fact that she she had a large base of money yeah. to begin with and a big name. Yeah. yeah, I do believe that. So, do you think that it? I mean, everybody basically knows that this money is really just symbolic. The award is symbolic oh. because Nick Gordon does not have this kind well, of money. It's not necessarily symbolic, though, because they can, you know, attach future earnings. So any money that he gets, they maybe may, be, may um, be able to get some percentage of that. And I think they do intend yeah. to garnish his wages. His wages. Yeah. Good luck trying to get anywhere near $36 million. Oh, yeah, I mean, they may not now. get it, but certainly for his life, that'll make his life just tougher. Right. Yeah. So do you think that the figure, $36 million, is a fair number? It's you know, hard to say what it, I'm not in that celebrity realm, so I don't know. And, what I, and is, I hadn't really examined the case. Yeah, and I hadn't examined the case to the point where I felt comfortable knowing that he was responsible. But that's yeah. just because I really haven't examined the details yeah. of the case. So Bobby Brown well, still he hasn't wants been charged criminally. Exactly, that and he's so waiting that was, for that. Yeah. That and is it, the other part. I mean, I I don't know. She has been <clears> gone for over six months now. Yeah. Prior to that, she was unconscious for another six months. I mean, this has been about a year. And I think they're saying that's probably why the criminal charges haven't happened because, you know, when the body was, I guess, essentially healing in the coma, that got rid of a lot of evidence that might have pointed towards his um, his direction. But I think after this long, they oh, would I, know if yeah. they were going to file charges or not. I mean, I guess it's possible. I think it's highly doubtable. I, yeah. yeah, at this that point, I can't, charges. Yeah. I can't imagine that they would. It has been a while, and mm-hmm. you would think that they would have already. And obviously, the standard is going to be higher in a criminal case. And uh, in this civil case where, one, it's just a preponderance of the evidence, and two, he, he, they didn't even necessarily pre- present evidence. It was just that he didn't show up, and therefore it was a default judgment. Right. So we don't even know how strong well, Bobby Brown is still pushing been. for a criminal case, but... My sense is that it doesn't look like it's coming. No, I don't get the sense so. And of course, a parent's going to want that criminal case because he's just who knows where he is or why, but he's just walking around somewhere with this hanging overhead. Whew, all right. Um, Now, moving on to a very kind, different kind of trial. Let's talk about Dylan Roof. He is the nut job that killed nine people in a church. And uh, he was about to plead guilty if the prosecution would have agreed to just give him life in prison, but prosecutors want the death penalty, and so now we're in trial. They're in jury selection, but first they had to deal with some, you know, preliminary issues that you have to in this kind of case, including whether this guy was so out of his mind that he can't even be competent to stand for trial, and then he wants to represent himself. what are your thoughts on this? It, it, it's interesting that he wants to represent himself. Um, it seems that the the big crazy murderers are into this thing. It's it, not unusual to have people who where we question their mental health and their mental stability. It's not unusual for them to choose to represent themselves in order to kind of. It doesn't yeah, generally I, go well, but I, okay, it doesn't go well. But is, the, the information that could 
potentially relieve them of some amount of culpability is the exact information they want to hide by by representing themselves because they don't want to introduce information about yeah. their mental history, but even though that's exactly what could get them off, get, get or them make off it or, or reduce their yeah. reduce their sentence or make them less culpable. My sense is that he wants to do this to bolster maybe his prison fame. Uh, my sense is he's probably maybe revered in a particular circle in prison. Um, by Trump fans? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know if I go that far. Well, maybe I would. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, but, before but, yeah. I thought that people like Dylan Roof were a serious outlier. <laughs> yeah. They're just a handful well, of I, nut jobs I, like I, this. And now I'm not so wait, sure I, that he's... <laughs> I don't know if that's fair, but I, I do think Dylan Roof is an outlier. I, yes, he massacred nine people in the church. But... Um, uh, so I do think he's Chelsea's an outlier. He says. <laughs> I, I'm just really but, disturbed that I don't think he's as much of an outlier as I had originally wait, thought. Yeah. Seeing as what the country selected as a president, <laughs> and then the increase in the number of hate crimes that have gone up yeah. since the election. But anyway, I digress. So, Sorry. So I'm guessing he's probably revered amongst that circle in prison, and maybe that's why he's okay spending life in prison. And I think this is probably just another opportunity for him to kind of you know show off his whatever his you know. His wings to the to the to the that crowd in prison. Okay. I think he's gonna. He wants to probably cross examine. I believe there are three survivors. He probably wants to cross examine them. He probably wants to humiliate them or embarrass them. And that for him would awful. bolster his um, you know, whatever Disgusting. it is. Disgusting. Yeah. I. It, this is such a shitty situation because yeah, the the survivors and uh, will if, if they face cross examination, it will be, be from him yeah. asking them directly questions about what happened. And this was in 2015, and one of them was an 11-year-old girl at the time. So, Ugh. And under the Sixth Amendment, I mean, he has that right to represent himself, provided yeah. that he has the mental capacity. Uh, he has that right, regardless of whether it's going to be for the worse for him. Yeah. Um, that's his right, and therefore yeah. those victims or the family members of the victims are going to have to deal with that during yeah. trial. So this is a federal um, case, and he's facing 33 counts of hate crimes, obviously some of which led to death, uh, obstruction of religion, and firearm charges. And prosecution, of course, is going for the death penalty. So n- nobody's really anticipating that he's going to be found not guilty. Mm-hmm. Really, everybody's waiting to see how the penalty phase of this turns out. But it looks like it's going to be a while before we get there because we're still in jury selection, and that itself is expected to take about two weeks. Yeah. Yuck. Um I, I just... But he, I think he will have um, counsel, um, standby counsel there, so... Yeah. The, the, yeah, the, the legal team that he has now will still be working as advisors. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, as a couple of fellows that were convicted this last week, which I think is great news, are a couple of L.A. sheriff deputies who were found guilty of beating mm. a man with mental illness who was in the prison, and then conspiring to cover it up. For me, the issue is, was their jail sentence long enough? But I don't know if you guys have some thoughts on whether the conviction is sensible in the first place. I I thought the conviction was good. But yeah, certainly the jail sentence, they could have faced up to, what, 40 years, and one of them got 21 months and the other one got five months. Yeah, this is, to me, not a reflection of justice being served. It's really actually very upsetting. And uh, I thought to get a comment from Brian Williams, remember he was our guest that came in, who's the uh, executive director of the Oversight Committee on the Sheriffs uh, now, and maybe the next time we have him in, we'll ask him specifically what he thinks of that. But I'm I'm sure he would have a very nice way of 
uh, of, of answering that. But for me, this is just an outrage. And yes, I understand that one of them was like a, a Iraqi war veteran. Some hailed him sort of as a hero for showing some discipline, actually, in, in deciding not to shoot people that had violated a, um, oh my gosh, what's it called when you're out too late? Curfew. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and and then you know the other guy was like, oh, this guy was young and immature, and he wasn't trained well. And the judge was like, yeah, this guy wasn't high up enough to really have much influence. But I'm like, what the? You know, mm. yeah, especially with this particular case because they planned this and they were looking for reasons to to justify the beating, and then they went and misrepresented um, documents to to make it look as if they had a reason to uh, discipline this person. And so that planning, that level of planning, I thought should have deserved a, a lot more um, of a yeah, sentence. This Absolutely. is one of the more egregious types of yeah. cases. Sometimes you can kind of pull together the fact that they probably tried to cover it up, but it's not such so clear-cut evidence. But here you have someone who was a whistleblower, essentially, yeah. who came in and testified and said, when I came in, they said, we are going to target this person tomorrow. Yeah. And then they went and they targeted that person. And then they had to do, you know, clean up the paperwork yeah. Yeah. Uh, and cover it up. So it wasn't that it wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't, wasn't a, there wasn't a, force a or, yeah. there wasn't a question of whether or what their actual intent was. I mean, it was very clear what their intent was. And there had been some other um, incidences of um, sheriffs, uh, you know, beating up inmates. And those ones got, you know, between like four and six years for sentencing. So to get, you know, two years or five months. Yeah is nothing. And the judge actually mentioned, oh, well, you know, does it really matter? Does it really yeah, matter how yeah. much of a I thought that was insane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, if, if, you know, is a person really going to be deterred with a three-year sentence, but they're not going to do it with a uh, five-month? Yeah. And, the, and the lawyer said, yeah, I actually do think the, sent- the severity of the sentence is yeah. going to impact whether they think this is something that they should do. Yeah, so the deputies were named Jason Branham and Brian Brunsting. So they're facing... Uh, one of them is 21 months, the other's 36. Um, five months. Oh, five months. Yeah. He is 36 years old, sorry. And I just, I mean, this is probably not the most spiritual or enlightened thing that I have said <laughs> or thought all day, but for me, justice will be served when these guys get their ass kicked in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take those as uncomfortable giggles of agreement. Um, yeah. Um, and then speaking of our prisons, um, President Obama still has a chance to commute the sentences of nonviolent drug offenders, and the nonviolent drug offenders whose sentences he's already commuted are urging him, begging him, please do more, because once Trump takes over, these people will likely die in prison for things that if they had been convicted of today, the sentences would be lighter, or in some states, maybe like California, wouldn't have been a crime Mm -hmm. at all. So any guesses about if or how many more people President Obama will set free? Well, I think it'll be a lot. I know they're working at a breakneck pace to just push them through. Or they could just do something really crazy and be like, if you were convicted of a nonviolent drug offense... You're out. And just instead of doing it one by one, anybody up for that? Well, I, well, mean, I, I like I like some of the restrictions or the requirements that yeah. the uh, like the clemency project has uh, in place. So the DOJ yeah. has in, initiated uh, a clemency project geared towards getting these non uh, nonviolent offenders out, but there are certain limitations on that. So um, you have to be serving a federal sentence. Um, it has to be a nonviolent crime. Um, you have to be a low level person, so you're not or- involved in organized crime, for example. Right. You've served at least 10, 10 years. You don't have a significant 
criminal history. And while you've been in prison, you've not been violent while you were in prison, um, as well as out of prison. So you don't have that history of violence. So, and, and you have to have good, had good conduct while you were in prison. So there are some additional things. It can't just be just, uh, well, yeah. you were nonviolent in this offense that you were jailed for, but you also have demonstrated that you're just a nonviolent person, period. Your history reflects that, and therefore we feel comfortable in that you're not a threat to public safety if we release I, you. I like, to, I, I like those guidelines, but I'd like to see that 10 years maybe reduced to one year, you know, or maybe a percentage of your sentence. Yeah, yeah. I think 10, 10 years is a little bit long time, yeah. even if, if I'm, you know, I've been convicted for a marijuana offense or a crack offense oh, and yeah. I only had a, a little tablet yeah. on me. Do some, I need to serve 10 years still? To, yeah. You know, I'd say maybe like 15% or 20, some percentage mm-hmm. of your sentence. Absolutely. You know? I guess I'm way more crazy liberal on this. I'm like, <laughs> just, I, I'm on this, like, let more people out because I think, yes, I like all that, except the energy and time and money and people to go through that whole process but you seems want to, know to be going way too slow. And I guess yeah. on the mm-hmm. balance of whether you want to let more people out and risk some people who maybe are are a higher risk to society versus keeping people in who really do not deserve to be in there, like if you've got to pick one uh, evil over the other, I would want more people to go free. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, I'm not we, afraid of these people. These, I think are, it's, these are federal prisons. They, they, Some they, have been they, there like ten years. <laughs> <laughs> My thing and, is, and, and they did, yeah. and they did commit a crime. Yeah, they so, did break a law, but, and, but, and, but I, but I agree, it's a, it's a, low, it's a low level crime. But I, I, agree. I don't think federal prison is as rehabilitative as we would like it to be. And so but I that think you might have not be the reason why we leave people in prison. If we let them all out, great. Then we'll send them like straight to a school and and rehabilitate. But, but what they, if you got convicted for a drug crime and then you were, I don't know, you, you were assaulting people in prison? You became a violent individual. I, I like the th- the idea that you you had a good I behavior be while violent. in prison. Well, hopefully not. But I like, who, of course, why wouldn't you? You almost have to be violent. That, that's one of the things. Actually, well, that's one of the things that have caught you not me seen about Orange Is the New Black. I mean, a lot of that's people one of the things released, that though, caught me so. about these requirements because yes, you have to have good behavior in prison, but at the same time, if you're going to survive in prison, you probably have to. I, I, you I have to. You, you can't be a little sheep. I mean, you look have at to kind the, of puff your the chest a little bit. Themselves were doing the people. A number of people have been get, have gotten released though, so people are making it through prison like, like a thousand. Fighting their a way thousand. Through. We don't know what fraction. Tiny. We don't know what, yeah. and we know there's a large population of nonviolent offenders I, in I, these in I, this prison system. I think if we got rid of the ten year requirement, you'd see a lot more. I don't think it's yeah. I don't think it's a good behavior part. I think it's the ten year requirement. Yeah. So I, I, like I think that. there are probably a lot of people who aren't. Oh, but I Come agree on. that it does yeah. need to be coupled with, you know, rehabilitation, education, things to help get these uh, but, nonviolent but offenders back But the fact that we don't feet. have those programs yet shouldn't mean that people should have to stay in prison. I, I still Let's want put to see... you in there for a week and see how you like it. Well, I, I don't know if I'd be a violent offender after, you know, I, I, I do like to see that these people are being released and haven't had a violent history I mean, while in but prison. But we know, I mean, we know the collateral damage to the families, to the kids how much it costs well, taxpayers. So are you suggesting one of these offenders who had a violent history in prison, maybe beat up 10 prisoners a day, should be released? Is that what you're advocating? Uh, beat up 10 people a day? Uh, I'm Probably saying, not. She's on balance. But the sh- how about they get um, the same amount of time that these sheriff's deputies did? Five months Whoa. for beating somebody up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make things really fair. <laughs> but I do, I, I would love my, nothing more yeah. than Obama to sign a ginormous clemency act and then you know save standing rock and then see bye guys i'm out of here that would be 
he would be my hero forever. But I, I do think he's definitely going to do as much of these Clementi as possible. So yeah, I'm right. As I, I like possible. having some yeah some <sighs> standards. <are good. laughs> okay, all right. So now an explanation to why I opened the show with saying we were going to cover um, an officer spaghetti brain, and that's because that was a term that Michael Slager used on the stand when he was testifying in his own defense on the Walter Scott killing. Uh, he said that during that experience, his mind was like spaghetti. However, he also testified that he kept shooting because that's what he was trained to do. So which one is it? Uh, which one do you believe, that he, uh, his mind was spaghetti or he was doing as he was taught in training? Or both of these are a terrible excuse. Right. I and mean, you should just that, walk yourself to prison that, that's out. That's my thing. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how either of those is really a defense to shooting someone who's who's running away from you. And I think I, in, he could have had some sort of mental blockage, but it doesn't mean that was a reasonable um, thing to do. So, unfortunately, the way your mind worked, whether it's spaghetti or the way you were trained, it's still should obtain you some um, jail time for what you've done. Right. I don't think it's reasonable to fear for your life when someone is running away from you, period. Yeah. Period, period, And and he's trying to say that the video that we've all seen that was taken by a a bystander on a cell phone cam uh, doesn't show the whole struggle. Uh, It doesn't give you the perspective of Slager's point of view. And to that, I'm like, I don't care. Does anybody else care? Yeah. I don't. That video was pretty jarring where it's like there's not really any other angles you need to see right. when someone's because, f- several feet away running right. away and you're shooting. And even 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 if there was a struggle, there was a tussle that happened five minutes earlier, one minute earlier, two minutes earlier, at the point in time in which he was shooting, the victim was running away from you. Right. So you've, you, there is certainly a gap between that struggle and the time when this person is running away from you where you kind of have the opportunity to collect your thoughts and know that this is not an appropriate um, use of force. Right. And so he says that Scott reached for his taser and somehow that means that when Scott was running away, he was still in fear for his life. It does not make any sense to me. Um, it sounds like a whole lot of BS to me. And the other part, the only re- other thing that was said on the stand that really sent me over the edge was the testimony that was allowed uh, about how the officer missed the birth of his son. There was this dramatic line of questioning about how he and his wife had been trying to get pregnant and that they did IVF and that he wasn't there during the birth and the attorney asks why not and he takes a long pause. Instead, I was in jail and the attorney clarifies, for this case, you mean? And he's like, yeah. (laughs) Um, That is totally irrelevant. I have no idea why that was let in at all. That might go towards punishment maybe but that has no bearing on whether this was a murder or not and it just seems to me a desperate attempt or maybe that's why his brain was like spaghetti at the time because his wife was pregnant because they were trying to go through the you know the IVF (laughs) (laughs) I don't know but but yeah I think it's he's got very poor defenses yeah, we were, I was waiting to see. Yeah. I was like, there's got to be something that we have not seen. But nope. Uh, he faces 30, li- 30 years to life if convicted. Um, and we shall see. I, it's, I, I can't imagine how many more witnesses they're going to have. Um, and then this should go to the jury pretty soon. And hopefully we'll have a guilty verdict to read to you all pretty soon. Finally for once, right? Yeah. <laughs> In these officers. If that doesn't turn shooting. out, I'm going to be so pissed. <laughs> I'll just add to the count. Oh, and there's another federal trial scheduled for next year. But still, I want this one to go well. 
All right. And then uh, today it was announced that the officer who shot and killed um, Keith Lamont Scott will not be charged. Um, this was a case of the guy who was sitting in the car. His family thought he was maybe even reading a book. And this whole issue came down to whether he was carrying a gun, which I actually think is the wrong issue to be looking at. But uh, apparently 15 prosecutors agreed that the shooting was justified because there was credible evidence that there was a gun on the scene. Does this decision make sense to you? Uh, once, I think once you believe that there was a gun on the scene, then it makes more sense. Yeah. Okay, so fine. It makes more sense. But the question is not whether somebody has a gun, because remember, this is America. Everybody and anybody, basically virtually, is allowed to have a gun. So having a gun in and of itself is not mean that somebody was in reasonable fear for their life or the life of somebody else. And that seems to be glossed over because everybody was so focused on whether or not there was a gun. And they also mentioned that he had not been obeying police commands, yeah. that they told him to drop the gun ten times. Uh, they, they were giving him instructions and he wasn't following them. So I think it, in terms of the poli- the dash, the the police cam, the instructions in the police cam video wasn't super, super clear as to what uh, Keith Lamont Scott was doing at the time he was shot down. It makes it at least be- understandable that, you know, reasonable minds yeah, I mean, might differ about what was reasonable in that circumstance. I think he should have been charged. At the same time, I think they created a great narrative to say why he shouldn't be charged. I don't know if I necessarily believe the narrative, but what they have laid out is enough for me to say, okay, I, yeah. I understand why he's not charged. And, and unfortunately, the, the family kind of played into the, the, the narrative about focusing on he didn't have a gun, he didn't have yeah. a gun. Because that is not the issue. He was not a reasonable threat. Yeah. That is the, is the real issue. Somehow the family, at least according to the um, attorney that made this announcement, said that um, you know the family's been gracious and they somewhat accept it, but they still want to know more about what happened. They still have questions and they want to know if there were police tactics of de-escalation that could have been used that could have prevented this death and maybe the death of of somebody else and I think it's a very valid question and a valid thing to look into further. Yeah and I think that I think that is probably one of the larger problems we have is that there aren't de-escalation tactics or they're only taken in certain communities and not others. Right. And so uh, I think once you get to that point that that's where we have trouble, and so we need to find a way that. Yeah, I hope that this yeah. like d- this case doesn't die here. Yeah. you know, no charges, and then everybody forgets about it. But there is still a problem, even if there were no charges. Why did he lose his life? How could we have prevented that? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so let's leave off on a very different kind of case, bringing it around back to Hollywood. A former TV host has sued for discrimination. Um, she was she's suing because she doesn't have kids basically is that the way that you read it that this woman was fired from her hosting gig because she didn't have kids well well it would it was that in a combination of um several different things uh, again it was also her parents they thought they thought her hair which was um, i guess sort of like a bright red and um i think would be considered more urban was too fiery for the show. Um, <laughs> I like that use of terminology. <laughs> so, um, How very PC of you. And, and you know, they basically said it was Portia Coleman for um, Hollywood Today Live. They'd taken the series from an online series, and you know, they got picked up by a network, and they wanted to, her to make some certain changes. And they even went to brought in her own hair and makeup person. They wanted her to hire a black person for the optics of it if they did some behind the scenes footage. So it, there was definitely 
elements to this case that are very troubling for, um, I believe it's Fox um, is one of the defendants. Yeah. How do you think it's going to turn out? Well, it, when, when courts take into account whatever directors or producers casting decisions, I mean, they have a lot of latitude in yeah. what they want to put on air. And yeah. this is going to you know, be tough. Do courts want to decide um, what ca- casting decisions are, you know, are critical to the content and, and what, you know, what what aren't I mean that's not really a position that I think courts you know should really man or can or feel comfortable mandating and there's yeah. a question as to whether they should be mandating those types of casting decisions yeah, and they brought um, so, in so, so I personally don't I, 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 I this don't is a really gonna... tough case but she may have some grounds I mean if she was fired because she didn't appeal to moms because she wasn't one and then nobody else on the panel was a mom well they brought or, in to replace her a mom a mom but, so, they, but there were other people on the panel we, yeah. who were childless who got yeah. to stay Right, and so, so I mean, he is, was the casualty. This is tough. So we, we do know, but I don't think she's going to do yeah, well in this case. There's no protected class for being for, single for and for childless. <laughs> <laughs> that's why yeah. I said, like, is, is, there, is there a protected class yeah. for single women? Usually, that's the dream, Are we right? A protected class? <laughs> 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 All right, so but, yeah, wish her tough. the best, but I think that this is going to be an but uphill battle. I do think, um, especially because they, they made direct comments about her here and season two and if there's any pretext behind that and if maybe being a mother was a pretext because they thought she looked a way that they found not appealing as a black woman I think then there'll be some trouble if at at worst you know she gets a settlement yeah but they did replace her with another black female so that's that's so, probably what's going to happen yeah. is that we will never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I did see the racial undertones in the case, and I think she probably has a, a lot of valid points. Yeah, interesting case, though. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that brings us to the end of our very wide smorgasbord of varying cases this week. I hope you join us next week. In the meantime, like, comment, tweet, at Chelsea Galicia. You can find me uh, at Shaka Strong on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AMYMS. Uh, join us again next week for another episode of Justice is Served. Bye, everyone. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us, info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio, Instagram me at King XO Bay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood, Hollywood redefined. redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.